Do you ever think about calling yourself the Rat King? I could. Like, most people haven't heard of me. But the people where I focus my attention have heard of me. Because it's much easier to get the attention of a group of people than all of the people. That's my guest, Paul Jarvis, talking about the benefits of focusing on a specific audience. Paul is perhaps the most internet famous of my guests so far, and I was interested in speaking with him about the role that saying no plays in building a successful freelance business. I'm Philip Morgan. This is a Consulting Pipeline podcast where we talk about building your consulting pipeline through positioning, education-based content marketing, and marketing automation. Hey, Paul. Howdy. I wanted to say thanks for getting in front of a microphone for a little while today with me. No problem. I feel like even though this is audio, I feel like you've got the black microphone and I've got the white microphone, so you have to be inherently evil in some way during this conversation. I probably... <laughs> yeah, I, I'll I'll ask something that I shouldn't, and that's how I'll do that. Or there's some, something Star Wars-y, because it's like light <laughs> light and dark. I feel like, although Stormtroopers were also... I've, I've started this on it by railroading the conversation on a super tangent. That's okay. I think there was something, um, <laughs> you know, uh, subversive about the Stormtroopers being white. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, so you'll, you'll be a Stormtrooper and I'll be Darth Vader. <laughs> there you go. Uh, pray that you don't, um, see me upset or whatever the line is. <laughs> so f there are exactly three people who apparently have listened to some portion of this podcast on Windows Media Player. Those are probably the only people who've never heard of you who are listening. But for those people, <laughs> can you start by saying who you are and what you do? Sure. I am Paul Jarvis, and I don't actually know what I do in general. I know what I do specifically. So I make websites for creative business people on the internet. I write books and articles for people that like to read said books. And I have a podcast where I co-host that with Jason Zook, who sold his last name and wore lots of t-shirts. And we talk about launching products and zombies and vampires and everything in between. And most recently, I am a course creator. So I teach freelancers how to take all the skills that they have um, with what they do creatively, whether it's programming or design or writing, and apply that to making a decent business out of it. Fantastic. So you're wearing lots of hats. I, I, I think of you, though, as someone who also has really focused their business. And people who listen to my podcast, um, hopefully they're not yet getting tired of the fact that I'm going out and finding people who've found a way to focus their business. So they're, they've kind of, at least for themselves, they've moved beyond being a generalist. And I have a standing invitation, by the way, for anybody who's tried that and it's worked out badly. But it so happens, maybe it's a selection bias at play, but everybody I talk to has a good story to tell about narrowing the focus of their business. You've been um, doing web design for close to two decades, right? Yeah. You know, if you round up two decades. Yeah. What was your, what was your first web design project? What was that like? Your first paid project. 
Oh, my first paid product. Well, my first, my first learning to teach myself um, web design, I actually ended up make, turning that into a paid project. But nice. I, didn't intend, I didn't intend on that. But So I made that. It was a website called Pseudo Dictionary, and it was a dictionary for words that wouldn't get into the normal dictionary, so slang, colloquialisms, that sort of thing. Uh-huh. That took off, um, and... I was getting like a million uniques a month. So I put ads on it because that's what you did. Uh-huh. And then I sold I sold it and then people realized, um, I was living in Toronto at the time and an agency realized this was around the turn of the internet world. So like mid 90s and agencies were starting to realize, hey, we could start selling our clients websites and make mm-hmm. more money. Right. So an agency was like, hey, Paul, you obviously know how to make a website because we've heard of you. That was it. <laughs> They're like, wow. Come work for us. How, and I was in they, New How had they heard of you? Was it like a local connection or press? No, or? it was, yeah, I was getting, I was doing like morning radio shows because <laughs> of this website. Wow. <laughs> it was a different, there were no podcast. like podcasts didn't exist back then. I was being interviewed by people on the radio for this podcast or for this uh, website that I'd made. Right. So it was getting, it was in Wired magazine. Like it got, it got traction. I don't wow. know why, but it got traction. Wow. And then, yeah, they heard of the website. They saw that I always sign my work. So it said like website by Paul Jarvis. And they were like, Hey, why don't you come work for us? And I was okay. like, I was in school uh, for computer science and artificial intelligence at the time. I didn't want to be there. So I was like, sure. So you, dro- <laughs> you, did, you dropped out and had a yeah, job. I dropped out of school and I started work. So um, I guess this is a little nosy, but what what did they pay you at that time? I think my Do starting salary, yeah, I think it was like thirty grand. Okay, which, so not bad for yeah a single guy or what yeah. early mid twenties. Yeah, yeah, early yeah earlyish mid earlyish twenties, and yeah, I was pretty happy about that because before that, all my other jobs were like hourly, like. Nine dollar an hour, like mm-hmm. doing stuff that students do, like just whatever needed yeah. to be done. And this was my first, like, I get a salary. <laughs> this is cool. I nice. get vacation days. I get um, benefits. I probably, I don't even remember if there were benefits. I'm pretty sure there were, though. Yeah, I was like, this is cool. Nice. So, um, how long did it take you to, you know, feel really good at that job? I don't know. I think as I started doing it and as I did more and more websites for the agency, I think I kind of started to feel a bit more confident mm-hmm. with it because previous to that, I had just been like, I was a programmer and a designer and I had started to put those two things together when the internet turned kind of graphical and more mainstream. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I think it was just over time, I started to be a bit more comfortable with that. I was actually doing a lot of flash back then too. Which Ooh. is weird. The kids probably <laughs> don't even know what Flash is. Yeah, right. Or you could animate stuff with SVG and JavaScript and CSS. Yeah, well, they, they can look it up on on the Wikipedia. Exactly. <laughs> so um, when did you, I mean, did, did you pretty quickly become self-employed after that? Or was it a longer process? Um, it, was about a, it was about a year, probably a bit less than a year. So I worked for them and I ended up, building their design department. So I went from like graphic or web designer to creative director. Mm -hmm. And I just didn't mesh with the company. Mm -hmm. The long short is that the guy who ran the company was a cokehead. 
It's really mm-hmm. ha- cokeheads are typically really nice people. They're just really hard to work with. So yeah. I left. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. So was it was it like sudden? You just said I, I got to get out of here. Yeah, I was just done. So how? Was, okay. So how did I, you I, find your feet after that? Well, that's a that's a funny story. So I quit, and I was going to go to the library the next day to figure out how to write a resume because I got hired out of school. So I didn't have resume. I didn't know. How, I didn't know what a resume. I didn't know how to do those. Right. And at the time, there wasn't that much stuff on the internet. So oh. I was like, I'm going to go to the library and like look up a book on right. resumes. The, the what color is your parachute book? Yes. <laughs> and. That day, I started to get calls from the clients from the agency saying like, hey, Paul, uh, we called and you don't work there anymore. So where are you going to go work? Because we'll just bring our work there because we liked working with you more than the agency. Uh, and I got probably three or four of those calls in like the first day or so. Right. And then the light bulb went off like, maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe there's a demand for me working for these people where I don't have to share working with them with an agency. I can just work for them on my own. Oh, interesting. So that was, you, know, you really didn't consider that until it just fell in your lap that way. Yeah. And then after that, I figured I went to the library <laughs> to figure out how to start a business. So I still went to the library. It was just for a different reason. Because they oh, didn't wow. know how to start a business and like open a sole proprietorship or whatever it was before I incorporated. Right. Yeah. Wow. So I feel like there's uh, this, this, I could be way off base about this, but I feel like in your story, uh, as much as I know about it, there's this idea that um, you, you need to say no to the right things. I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, you're, you're like, literally internet famous. A lot of people know who Paul Jarvis is. A lot of people have either read your books or read or uh, on your email list or, you know, something like that. So you, you've come a long way in, in some ways from that time when you, when you didn't even know that it was possible to work for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's so hilarious. I mean, did you think that the really, the only choice was to have a job? Yeah. At the time, like, think about it, though. Like, how many self-employed people did you know in the mid-90s? I didn't know anybody that worked for themselves. I, yeah, I knew one, uh, like, family who was rich, like myself, um, in high school. And, like, they owned their own business. And that was it. And I didn't think that you got there with some little small step. I just thought maybe you were born into life that way or whatever, <laughs> right? So, yeah. yeah, exactly. In the mid-90s, I knew very few self-employed people. Yeah, people were confused. Like when I told people I worked for myself, they were like, but I don't like I don't understand what so what does that even mean? And now it's just like, oh yeah, I work for myself too. <laughs> yeah, I I I don't remember the data source, but something like 30% of millennials are freelancers. So yeah, it's, it's been a it's big 30, change. Yes, um Elance and Freelancers Union did a survey and it's like 35% and in the next few years it's going to be up to 55% according to like a projections, like freelancer wow. projections. Wow. <laughs> so, okay. So you kind of fell into it like I did. Uh, yeah. sounds like you did a tiny bit more research. You at least went to the library. <laughs> I just said, I can do that and proceeded to make every mistake in the book. But I feel like you, you got to where you are today by, um, saying no at, at maybe the right moments or in, in certain ways you said no so that you could have more of what you wanted. So I'm curious, um, 
do you, when, when's the first time you remember turning down and a client that would have been a good client, but they just didn't fit what you were trying to do? So, and I have a few like that, but I think the first time that I think I said no in a pivotal way to my career was when I said no to an existing client who just wasn't paying me, who kept saying, Paul, the money's coming, just keep doing the work. And they had racked up, I think it was like twenty or $30,000. Like it was a lot. And back then that was like, that was like half of my, what I would make a year. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was a lot of money. And they were just like, the money's coming. We've got, this was back in the time, this is like the the wild west of the internet where like, VCs were very different than they are now and mm-hmm. burn rates were insane. And yeah, they were just like, yeah, the money's coming. We have like the signed document from the our backer and you just got to wait a bit, but just do this extra work. And I just kept doing it. And then after, yeah, after they racked up an insane bill, I was like, I, so how about this? How about I'm not doing any more work until I get paid? And they're like, well, just do some more work. And I was like, no. Like I'm not doing, I'm not doing more work because you aren't paying me. It's like the Mike Montaniero, like fuck you, pay me. How how long did you have to think about that before you had the courage to go through with it? Months. Oh yeah. wow! It was it was it was a long like it was basically when they started to say we want to pay you, but we're not. But here's more work. Please do this. Okay. And then I did it, and then I was like. I kind of want to get paid. Like I like doing the work, but I kind of want to get paid. And but yeah, it took me a few months to work up to saying no for that. What what actually happened when when think, you said no? I, they they said okay. Well, we don't have the money, so we'll just work on getting that. And I was like okay. I'm not doing anything until I get that money. But as soon as you give me that money, then let's keep working. And yeah, I never got the money. <laughs> so oh, wow. I, I never, I never did more work for that, for that company. What were your fears about what would happen as a result of saying no? That I would lose out on all that money, which did okay. actually come true. But mm-hmm. the good thing there was that I could find other work that did actually pay me for the work that I was doing. Right. So I did lose out on that money, but... I could have, and it's like sunk cost bias, right? Like uh-huh. where I did like a, a few hours of work and I didn't get paid for it. And I was like, okay, whatever. And then I did a few more hours. So I'm like, I want to get paid for those first few hours. Then it was like days, then weeks, mm-hmm. then months. And mm-hmm. I was just like, if I stop now, I'm not going to get paid for all of that stuff. But I realized like, I know how to make money. Like I know how to do work and get paid for work. Mm-hmm. If these people aren't going to pay me for my work, there are other people who will do that because most of the time clients pay you for the work that you do. Right. Yeah. It really, it sounds, I'm guessing, I mean, this is pure speculation. I'm guessing no matter how much work you had done for them, if you had not said no, there would have been no light at the end of that tunnel. Yeah, they they went under. So I would have just done more work to not get paid. So I'm glad, even though I didn't get that money, I'm glad I cut it off at a certain time because I would have ended up doing way more work and not getting paid for that work. So, what was the first time you said no to um, a client where it was, it could have been a good personality fit, the money was right, but you just didn't want to do that kind of work or or have that go in your portfolio or you know where it was more of a, this is not what I'm trying to build kind of a no. 
I feel like I have so many sensational stories, but <laughs> it was it was a mining company. It was a okay. northern Canada mining company. Uh-huh. And yeah, they had the money. They were a mining company. I'm sure they had all the all of the money because mining company. <laughs> right. But yeah, I just felt like the way that I lived my life and what I was interested in at the time and what I was very participatory in was environmental rights stuff. Mm-hmm. And a couple times I got hired by like oil companies or mining companies. Mm-hmm. And I started to think about it. Like I'm living my life one way, but I'm getting money in uh, an opposing way. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't, this doesn't make sense for me to do this. And I don't think that that is a good idea to do that. So I stopped doing that. How much of your business were you saying no to? Are we talking like a very small percentage or a lot? At the time, I wasn't saying no to anything. If somebody had the money, I was doing the work. Okay. And that, and, and, and that was it. I wasn't at that point really focused on any niche. The niche was people who paid me, which is too big <laughs> of a niche, right? Like it's just, yeah, it, yeah there's, there's no way to, to focus on that. There's, that. That isn't focus. So your first uh, no kind of came out of, uh, people would call it your values or your principles yes. or yeah. something like that, your beliefs. Yes, exactly. And then only later I started saying no for, for niching reasons. So how long did it take you to you know go out of business and suffer all the disasters that your mind may have told you you were going to suffer by saying that no? <laughs> A loaded uh, question, uh, I know. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's scary. Like, I still get like and i've probably been very very focused on the niche that i work in now for probably a good like eight nine years Mm -hmm. and i still it's still scary to say no like it's still like i turned down a project last week Mm -hmm. and it still felt weird like i still like why are you doing this like that voice in the back of your head is like they have money (laughs) why why do you not want money paul interesting you Okay, but so yeah. it's not just a cold, rational decision. It still involves that emotional yeah. quickening of the pulse. Like, am I going to regret this? Yeah, is, is there not going to be any work in the future? If I turn down this work, what if no work ever comes my way ever again? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that doesn't, that lessens, but I, for me at least, it doesn't go away. And I know it's like, logically, I know it's not true. Logically, mm-hmm. I know that I get a steady number of leads because of where I am in the audience that I serve. Mm-hmm. And because when people think of web designers for the, who I focus on, they think of me. And that's like the best place that I could possibly be in. And still I get scared sometimes with saying no to people. Why do you think that is? I mean, you work with a lot of freelancers, so you, yeah. you're helping people who face the same issue. Do you have, have you developed like kind of a theory about why, why we do that? I think people who are inherently creative are inherently questioning, especially of themselves. And mm-hmm. I think that's what drives us to greatness and experimenting and innovation. Mm-hmm. But it's also what can hold us back. Mm-hmm. Like it's the the what if and the questioning is the best and the worst thing that can happen. And a lot of us lead our lives by that questioning and experimentation and a lot of us struggle with it. And I, that's mm-hmm. the, like in talking to, I think I have like 1,200 people, 1,200 freelancers in my class, and they all struggle with pretty much, like I ask in our Slack chat, 
like loaded questions like that. And right. I hope that everybody feels kind of the same way to some degree and with some aspect of their own personality put into it. Right. Interesting. Yeah. So how did you, you have this <clears throat> sense of who, who's right for Paul Jarvis and who's a, a great fit for you and your services. And I, I'm talking about your, you know, web design services, not the, mm-hmm. not the other, you know, the books and the, the more uh, transactional stuff, I guess. Um, how did you get there? I mean, did you go away to a mountaintop and <laughs> meditate on it? Did you just, was it process of elimination? What got you to having that idea of who's right for you? It was slow and iterative, just like most things that I do, where it was like I started working with a few people who were pretty much in the same audience. And I was like, okay, I kind of get this audience. I can can figure out some extra stuff for them. Because with me, with whatever I do, I like money, but I like value more. Mm -hmm. And I find that the money follows the value. So I, I was seeing that because I was working with a lot of people who were doing the same thing, I knew a lot more about what they were trying to do and I knew a lot more about how to get there Mm -hmm. as I started working with a couple more and then a couple more. And then I realized that the more I know about the audience that I'm trying to provide value to, the more I can help them do better with their business. Because whether it's web design or writing or programming, they're not coming to you for for that thing. They're coming to you because they want their business to be better. And that's just the output of the conversation and the collaboration that you do. So the more that you can figure out how they can solve their problems and make their business better, whether it's through whatever skill you have, the better, the more that client's going to like you, the more that client's going to tell everybody else that they know, like, this person helped me with my business. This person, I do better because of the help from this person. And the more people that you can help in a similar like audience or niche, then the more people are going to start paying attention. Like that's what people see my name at the bottom of sites that they love. And they see my name at the bottom of a lot of sites that they love. Mm -hmm. And then they're like, if I want web design, like who's that guy who's at the bottom of every site? It's Paul. And then they get in touch with me. And then if it's somebody that isn't in that audience, like most people haven't heard of me. But the people where I focus my attention have heard of me. Because it's much easier to get the attention of a group of people than all of the people. Right, yeah. I mean, the world has however many billion people. Most of them don't know you. Maybe people don't know Paul Jarvis. 99% of them have never heard your name. Exactly. But within that tiny sliver of the world population, there's enough that it it really is working well for you. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was looking at your um, you know portfolio on your website. It's mostly female entrepreneurs who have something to sell online is how I would characterize it. I know it's a little different than what you said. Um, there, there's an element of creativity and kind of an element of you know this maybe a self improvement angle as well. Yeah, is that about right? Yeah, pretty pretty much. That's okay. the that's where I focus. And it isn't it is mostly women that I work mm-hmm. with. But there are a few guys, but then those guys fall into the same like they're motivated by the same things. They're trying to reach mm-hmm. the same audience who is mostly female where there mm-hmm. are a small percentage of men, but yeah, that's yeah, that's that's where I, that's where I like to that's where I like to live in terms of the services that I provide. Yeah, that's where you provide that value yeah. and you have like a you know, a if you think of it as a marathon, you have like a 
10 mile head start over your competitors in that audience, right? Because of your depth of understanding of their needs and their problems and their preferences. If you trace that back to the first person who, that you worked for that fit that profile, was there anything that you noticed that was different about that project? Did it go in some noticeably different way? Or is it only in retrospect that you see that? No, I think what drew me to the audience that I have and that I actively pursue for work is that prior to that, I was working a lot with companies who need to put things through all of these channels and they need to do things a certain way. Everything has to be safe and vetted mm-hmm. and everything like that. And I find that, and I think the the reason, and I hate to gender generalize, but mm-hmm. I think the reason why women entrepreneurs are doing so well is because they're willing to try things in a way that's different, in a way that works for them, not just the status quo. Mm-hmm. And I started working with a couple of them and I was like, we can do some cool stuff. Like we can try things that we think are going to work that nobody else is doing. And this is a lot of fun. Oh, wow. Like this is not just me doing a website for an insurance company or some mining company. Right. Who it has to be a certain way. It has to match the values of the shareholders or meet these quarterly earning reports. It's like they have an idea. I help them put it on the internet and we do it in a way that we think is going to work for their audience and for their brand. And we can try whatever we want to get there. And I was like, oh, this is cool. That's this, awesome. ma- this makes me excited to do what I do. Wow. Okay. So there was something distinctly different about it. Yeah. So when did you start saying no to things that were outside just that niche? I think it was once I started to work with like a couple dozen of these mostly women, mm-hmm. um, like creative entrepreneurs, and I started seeing how much I liked those projects versus the other things I was working on. Because when I started doing that, I wasn't just focused on them. I was <clears throat> kind of working with them and some other people. And I was like, I like these projects more. And I'm seeing more return in terms of the value that I'm providing to them. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing them do better. Like it's, it's hard to see like, okay, is this um, like mining site really bringing them like that much more revenue or things like that. Whereas when it's a one person business selling like a product that's on the internet, we can measure everything. Yeah. And so, yeah, I just, it was slow and gradual, but I, as I did more projects like that, I realized that, okay, one, I can provide a lot more value to them Two, They are much more fun to work with and I enjoy my work a lot more. And I was like, yeah, this is, this is kind of what I wanted to do. And then I, yes, started turning down more and more work after that. And there wasn't like one specific thing or project that I can think of that I turned down that was pivotal. It was just Mm -hmm. like, I enjoy this work so much that I'm just going to focus on this. Mm -hmm. Right. So there was no, um, you didn't pull out any spreadsheets and say, well, the the real money is here. It it was, it was kind of more of an emotionally driven process. It sounds like. Yeah. I mean, backed up with the fact that your bank account wasn't telling you otherwise. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like the, the intersection of what I, what I like to do and what people valued and then what people would pay for. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah, like there's a lot of audiences I'm sure I would love to work with that don't have 
money to to spend on it. So they're not the, they're not the right fit for me. Yeah, I mean, did you ever? I mean, it sounds like you you shared one story of the startup. I mean, that's an audience that a lot of people love because it's uh, such interesting, you know, fertile ground to work in. But um, the money is sometimes not there to pay for really high quality help, you know, with a yeah. website or software development or whatever. Yeah, and there's always too much um, going on behind the scenes with startups. And I mean, I've worked with startups for like 15 years. So I've seen like the evolution of what a startup is. Like when I started working with startups, startups Mm -hmm. were companies that got like half a million a month burn to build like a 30, 40 person company to see if an idea was valid. Right. Which is totally, that's not how it works anymore. Like that's so not how it works anymore. But I just, I don't know. I find that those people, they're driven by things that I'm not always in alignment with. Whereas the people that I work with now, we kind of share the same values. And we do, like, I kind of am in the audience that I serve, which isn't always the case with people. Uh-huh. But I feel like I, I hit this. Like, people that know my clients also know who I am from that space, which I, which is interesting to me because then I can kind of see what works for the clients that I work with, but also what works for me because I also sell things on the interweb. Right. <laughs> like products and books and info things. So right. I, we can pull, we can pull from a larger pool of, of data and case studies when, when we're building things together. That's great. I'm curious uh, if it ever just at any point got really hard to, to say that no, even though you were getting, you know, feedback in the form of people sending you checks and, Paul, we want to hire you. We saw your name on these other websites. We want the same kind of result. Did it ever get hard to say no? Yeah, there's been a few cases where it's from a a big company or it could have been like a big break or, or that sort of thing. And I just feel like at the time it feels scary to turn down like working for somebody that has like millions of people in their audience and things like that. And it's just like that maybe it would have been a big break. Maybe it wouldn't have Mm -hmm. been, but I kind of like that I lead my comp. And the reason why I work for myself and I haven't built a company or an agency is because I in control and I can have the bare, the least amount of responsibility as possible. Yeah. Like I don't have to pace out. Like I was talking to a friend um, yesterday who the most stressful time in his life is when he couldn't afford to pay his employees and had to let some go. And I'm like, I don't want, like, I don't want to be in that position. So yeah, I've turned down a couple of things where it felt like it could have taken me to the next level. Or to, <laughs> right. I'm doing air quotes. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> I just, I don't know. I think I'd rather get to where I'm going the way that I want to and so I kind of like at the time, it's like, yeah, I mean, that could have been a great project or it could have made a ton of money or I could have like been internet famous in some other place. But I don't know, like I like my life. I like where I'm at and I don't, I don't know. I'd rather get to where I want to go by my own means. How long did it take for opportunities to start just showing up for you after you'd started to narrow your focus? You know what I mean? Where you're just like, Wow how did you find me and yes let's work together like that kind of stuff it was it was exponential so it started slow and then like a little bit more then a little bit more and then a little bit more and then like 
all of the people getting in touch for all of the... Uh, that's why I had to automate my onboarding process to weed most people out because right. it's I can't deal it like it's too much. I don't want to hire somebody to deal with it and I don't want to deal with the volume. So I think for that, I think once a few of my clients started to see like big time success uh-huh. and my name was associated with them and my strategy and work and design was associated with their brands, then it was just like, I, we need to hire Paul. Like he's done the sites for the people who are at the absolute top of this audience. Mm-hmm. We need him too. Right. And that was really like a turning point for my career or whatever it's called, because it's like, I can be so picky because I like, I have no shortage of leads, but right. now it's a matter of me figuring out if this person is the right fit, not just for me, but for them. Like, I don't want somebody to hire me if I don't think I'm going to provide like a good amount of value for their money. And I turn people down for that reason alone most of the time. Right. Yeah. The, the return is just not going to be there no matter how great you do your side of things, right? Exactly. Like I had a, a woman last month who didn't, who wanted to work with me. She was, she was great, but she didn't understand really the fundamentals of like business or the internet or any, like she didn't mm-hmm. know like anything from CMSs to email. And I don't want my clients, my clients don't need to be experts, but she didn't understand how business on the internet worked. And she was, but she was dead set on hiring me because she knew that I'd worked with the people that she admired. Right. And I was like, please just build a site on your, like go build a Squarespace site and like build a bit of an audience, build a bit of an understanding for a year and then come back and then you will get bang for your buck. Whereas right now we're going to build something and we don't know if it's going to work. I'm not a I'm not uh, like magic wand that you can wave at your online business. I wish right. I was because I would wave that wand at my own business. Right. But, yeah. Interesting. Okay. So you know, as you as you look back on on that journey from working for an agency and all of a sudden discovering you can work for yourself to where you are now. Um, you know, what advice can you take away from that and, and give others who are at that point where, yeah, things are kind of working, you know, they're a generalist. Sometimes they've got the feast famine thing going on. Is it, is it really worth it to try to make this transition to having just one audience you serve or, you know, do you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. And I think it's, it's just, it's easier. Like, to be honest, that's one of the biggest reasons that I like focus is because it's easier. I know exactly who my audience is. I know, like, if you look at my portfolio page, there's no, there's no mock, there's no screenshot. Like, I'm a web designer, for God's sakes. There's no mock-ups. <laughs> there's just a bunch of writing. Right. Because I know, I know my audience so well. It's easy for me to write a sales page that converts because uh-huh. I know exactly what the people that I'm trying to reach care about. And I can use that. And I, I talk to these people and I hear what they have to say and I look for commonalities and I can use their words. Like uh, that's, that's like how a lot of people write sales pages, right? It's like you listen to your audience, you listen for commonalities and like pains and motivations, and then you take their words and you use them. So in the sales page, so then they feel like it resonates with them. Mm-hmm. 
and like, yeah, coming back to the, what I was saying, like, it's just easier to focus. Like I know how to write articles that Mm -hmm. my audience resonates with. I know where these people hang out on the internet so I can talk to them there. I know how to find, um, new clients. People know how to find me because they see my name around because I exist in that community. So it's just, it's easier. Yeah. It's just, it's plain and simple. It's easier. Oh, that's so interesting. You've never, I think at any point in our conversation today, referred to yourself as an expert, but you know, when I look at you from the outside, you have a lot of the qualities or the good qualities of expertise. You know, you deeply understand the problems that you solve for your clients. You understand how to create the benefits that they pay you for. And you know, you just know their world inside and out. You know, it's what you would expect if you went to a doctor for help with you know, this weird pain you're feeling that no other doctor can figure out. And that doctor has got the expertise and they, you know, they do whatever they do and they make it go away because they understand that one little thing so deeply. We would call them an expert and I guess we'd apply that word to you. But do you think of yourself as an expert? No, not. <laughs> yeah, I don't. It's, it's weird because like I feel like there's a bunch of different ways to approach that. Like I know some people who are definitely like, experts and authorities in their field Mm -hmm. and that's the way that they come across and that's good that's Mm -hmm. that's their brand but i feel like for me because it's just the way that i think about myself i just feel like i'm just a guy in it too yeah and i know some stuff and sometimes i write about that stuff or talk about that stuff but it's just yeah i don't know i just feel like i'm in it with everybody else and i just i figured some things out i have definitely not figured everything out but it's learning and exploring and playing, really. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that, I just feel like that's very important because uh, people think about, well, you know, if I'm going to charge rates like Paul Jarvis charges, I, I really need to be a lot, you know, I need to have some stuff dialed in. I need to have 10 years of experience and I need, you know, they just have a checklist of all their inadequacies, mm-hmm. right? And they've they've all got to be overcome before... Yeah, they're worthy of charging those rates. Um, but it sounds like even though you, you know, you look at the results you get and then you're like, well, that's a great deal for my clients, even though my rates are at the top end of, of, you know, of web designers, let's say, mm-hmm. you don't walk around feeling like you've got it all figured out. <laughs> and I'm not no. trying to pick on you. I'm just, I'm trying to help people understand that I think a lot of people who charge premium rates and are well-respected in their field probably just feel like ordinary people who've just done things a little differently, right? Yeah, I've just given, and I was talking to somebody else about this uh, recently, I just feel like for some reason I've given myself permission to do what I want, Mm -hmm. and I know that I provide value to my clients. I know that a lot of the time, it's not like because I charge that, I know exactly what to do to make their business like a million-dollar business. Like I have that in my track record with clients, but I can't guarantee that. Like people are always like, oh, well, so do you guarantee this and that? It's like, no, I talk about the things that I know we can work on, the problems that they have. I talk about what I've done in the past as case studies and we move forward in a collaboration. It's not, I'm not guaranteeing anything specific to my clients because I, I can't. 
Nobody, nobody can. It's like SEO experts saying, like, I will get you to number one in Google. <laughs> it's like, no, you can you know what to do to get the best possible outcome, but the mm-hmm. outcome is still uh, there's too many variables. So you are more likely to achieve favorable outcomes, but it doesn't mean just because you charge premium rates, it doesn't mean you're guaranteeing that kind of stuff. But the, the premium rates are justifiable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think it's important for people to remember that. Yeah. But I think you put your finger on it. A, a lot of it is just being willing, giving yourself permission to to charge that much, and then supporting it in every way that you possibly can by, you know, focusing and choosing a market that you can serve better than any other market. Yeah. All the things we've talked about. Yeah, and then those people, and then the the, the funny thing with the, the focus, right, and I'm sure you know this too, it's like as you have that focus and as people start to notice you, then you start to get more leads and you start to get more work and then you have more work than you can do and then you realize you could charge more for that work and then you do and then it's not like I started out and I charged 10 grand for a website. Like it, it's a it's a process and as more work happens and as more people like hear about you and learn about you and want to work with you, then it slowly goes up. I think I, I was charging by the hour when I started. Mm-hmm. I think I was probably char- like when I started it, I was maybe at was maybe $20, $25 an hour mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. for doing websites and stuff. And it's, yeah, now I don't even charge by the hour and yeah. it's, it's very different, but it's a process. Like it's not just like, Oh, some some switch is flipped. Now I'm an expert who charges premium rates. It's a mm-hmm. it's a slow build. It's it's always a slow build. I know you. This is my <clears throat> second to last question. The last question is going to be: How can people ask you more questions without depending on me to do it for them? <laughs> the, but the second to last question is: I know you 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 were a musician or you are a musician, but you were kind of like more focused on your music career for a while. Do you see any similarities with how, you know, getting known and maybe even becoming famous as a musician, is it similar at all to the world that we're in as self-employed freelancer types? Yeah, I can, yeah. in some ways I think it is. Like it's a, it's work. And it's so funny that like every single person, whether they're an entrepreneur or a musician who is an overnight success has worked at it for years. I guess it's funny how that happens where every single overnight success has a backstory that you just don't know about. So you attribute it to something, a switch flipped and you are now a success. Right. Just because because you didn't know about that person yesterday and then now you think their album is the best thing you've ever heard. Exactly. Doesn't mean they got there in one night. Yeah. And even like, yeah, when I was touring pretty much full time, it was like, it required playing shows every night to build a following. And it like we built the band up to do fairly well for us. Like we were actually making money as musicians, which is weird <laughs> for musicians <laughs> to make money. But like, yeah, it took recording some albums. It took playing shows every night. It took getting really good at stage presence. And then it got took a lot of work to get people to get to the merch booth which is where the money's made anyways. Yeah. So yeah, it was, it was a lot of work, but it, and it pays off iteratively. Yeah. Like most things, there's a little bit and then a little bit. It's not like 
all of a sudden, like, oh my God, I'm playing like a gazillion person stadium from like the open mic last night. It does, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. There's nobody, um, you know, who's just going to show up and discover you, whether you're a freelancer or a rock musician, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. We got offered record deals too. And we turned them all down because they were just crap. Uh, like it's just people think like, oh, a record deal is going to be my big break or even in publishing. They're like, oh, a, a book deal is going to be my big break. It's like, you're probably going to have to do just as much work and (laughs) it's still not a guarantee you could i have friends whose albums got shelved for years and then they got dropped from the label years later and they couldn't do anything until then so Mm. i don't know yeah i'd rather have control of my own destiny for that kind of stuff for sure well paul how um how can people get questions in front of you or find out more about you or you know just say hi um, probably the Twitter is the easiest place. Okay. Uh, I'm PJRBS on Twitter. And then the best place to, I don't reply to emails because I get too many, but I do, I'm much more likely to reply to email subscribers because I love my list. And that's where I spend most of my time writing for it or answering questions from people who wrote in because of something that I wrote. So my mailing list is a Sunday email called the Sunday Dispatches, which is a good thing that it's on Sunday because it's called the Sunday Dispatches. That works out Uh, well. (laughs) Yeah, the link is on my Twitter. Or if you Google Paul Jarvis, I am the entire front page and you'll see Sunday Dispatches on there somewhere. Paul, thanks so much for getting in front of a microphone and telling your, you know, a part of your story. I really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. This is fun. That's it for this episode of the Consulting Pipeline podcast. Thanks again to my guest, Paul Jarvis. You can find Paul on Twitter at PJRVS. And you can find him on the web by doing a Google search for Paul Jarvis. That's Jarvis with a J. You can find more episodes of this podcast at consultingpipelinepodcast.com. I'm Philip Morgan, and I hope to see you again next time.